we're very excited to have uh, Connie Benson. Uh, um, she had to travel across town to be here today, but we still want to thank her. She's a professor of medicine and global health and a vice chair for education and ID training in the Division of Infectious Disease at uh, University of California, San Diego. She'll be talking to us about new drugs. Thank you so much for being here today. So thank you to uh, our organizers for asking me to speak with you this morning. As you heard, I'm gonna be talking about new and investigational antiretroviral drugs. And in contrast to past years, this is a relatively short talk now. Uh, I could have the first slide where I'm direct. There we go. So my financial relationships, you can read at your leisure in the learning objectives as well. So let's move right in. I'm going to start off the talk by asking the quintessential question about whether we need new antiretroviral drugs and provide my perspective on the answer to that question. And then I'm only going to talk about four classes of drugs as listed here and then finish by some comments on future directions. So you are all very familiar with these types of slides and the only point of showing them again, I'm sure you've probably already seen it already during this conference, is the fact that all of our first line therapy recommendations from virtually all um, guidelines uh, entities have as their basis integrase strand transfer inhibitors. And that's for good reason. They are well tolerated. They're now long acting. They're available in combination with nucleoside analogs as single uh, pills and can be given once daily. And although there may be some minor caveats for individual patient considerations, these are the regimens that are now the cornerstone of antiretroviral therapy. And although integrase strand transfer inhibitors are the cornerstone. There are a host of other agents that are also available, but the key here is that they're all available in combination as first line um, single tablet regimens that can largely be given once daily. And that's a huge uh, advance in the last 35 years of antiviral drug development for HIV. So is there a need for new antiretroviral drugs? Um, despite this unprecedented progress, there still are some holes in our armamentarium. The promise of new longer acting injectable agents get away from the concerns that some patients have about pill burden or drug burden and the ability to have better control of their lifestyle. There continue to be some adverse effects of our current uh, agents, been a lot of attention given to weight gain associated with TAF and with INSTEs. And some of those do inhibit or compromise the ability of patients to adhere to their regimens. That inability to adhere to regimens, either because of lifestyle issues or adverse effects of drugs, still leads to some modicum of virologic failure in our patient populations. And that virologic failure can compromise a regimen and subsequent regimens to the point that we need new drugs to put in combination. So the answer to that question from my perspective is yes, we do still need new compounds, but they need to be in the category of our, of our current compounds, well tolerated with few adverse effects available in long acting uh, formulations and able to be given once daily. And if we're going to compete with what's currently available. 
The issue of drug resistance we know is much lower in prevalence than we've seen in many past years. And this is true not only of emergence of resistance on therapy, but also the prevalence of transmitted drug resistance. And while at CROI this year, there was a presentation about transmitted drug resistance from Rhode Island, giving us a relatively startling number that was always based on, or mostly based on NNRTI resistance. And that's always been the Achilles heel with um, relatively vulnerable regimens containing all the NNRTIs and nucleoside analogs. When you look at the pre prevalence of transmitted drug resistance to the INSTIC class of compounds, looking at data from Europe presented this year, that rate of prevalence or of drug resistance was 0.23%. So that's a really startling number and tells us that even with the use of, of integrated strand transfer inhibitors, we have a remarkable ability to reduce the emergence of drug resistance. So these are in the latest iteration I've seen of people talking about the pipeline, new antiretroviral drugs in development. You'll see here that this table isn't very well populated. And that means there aren't a lot of new drugs in development. And some of these have already dropped off of this table. So what I'm gonna be talking about for the rest of the talk are the ones I've highlighted in yellow. And one of these is already sort of dropped off the table as well. And that's Islatravir. Islatravir, I talked about at this conference last year, is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor that is responsible for causing chain termination in the uh, replicating RNA and DNA of HIV. And it's active at sub-nanomolar concentrations, had promise as being tenfold higher potency compared with many of our current antiretroviral drugs. And with a very long plasma half-life and an even longer intracellular half-life was felt to be a very um, favorable drug for further development, was being evaluated for prevention and treatment in a pill form, an implant form, and an injectable form. Um, early studies were also very favorable. This is a relatively complicated study design, their phase 2b study design, but in treatment naive individuals, um, they were randomized to one of three different doses of Islatravir in combination with Duravarine and 3TC and compared to a control arm of Duravarine, 3TC and Tenofovir. And after week 24, they went on to part two where the dose ranging continued, but the 3TC was dropped. So two drug combinations with Azlatravir and one of three different doses in combination with Duravarine and continuing on with the control arm as the fourth arm. And then part three was a maintenance phase with the two drug arm of Azlatravir and the middle range of the drug dose in combination with Duravarine alone and then compared to the control arm. The overall results of that original 2B study, phase 2B study were promising. There were no discontinuations due to safety events. There was no emergence of resistance. There was no drug related significant or serious adverse events. And the week 144 efficacy data um, followed, following patients in that maintenance phase all the way out to week 144 was presented at the EACS last year and also showed 
considerable promise with about 70 to 75% of individuals still fully suppressed with most of the treatment arms with the exception of that highest dose of Islatravir over that 144 week period. However, Merck announced that the drug was on clinical hold at the end of 2021. And the reason for that was the FDA observation that there were decreases in total lymphocyte count and, and CD4 T cell counts in participants in both the treatment trials and in the prevention trials. And the drug was put on developmental hold in order to investigate that. Now, in my understanding from Merck and from data that I've seen, that there, the investigation for why these decreases in CD4 count and total lymphocyte count is likely to be presented at meetings in the coming year, I don't think the drug is completely off the table, but its future development is uh, uncertain. The next novel first class, first in class capsid inhibitor I'm going to talk about is lenacapavir. Um, again, I talked about some of the data from these trials at last year's conference. And those of you who were in attendance will remember this is active against a broad range of HIV-1, including those with resistance mutations to virtually all of our current drugs. It has multiple fact areas at which it influences viral replication in modulating the stability or transport of capsid complexes and therefore inhibiting multiple processes necessary for viral replication. It too is very potent at picomolar activity, more potent than many of our current antiretrovirals and is being developed in an oral and an injectable formulation. Um, the studies that have been presented in the last year are updates of some of the early uh, week 48 data that I presented last year. And lenacapavir, again, in a treatment naive population, again, studied in a relatively complicated phase 2B study design, randomized treatment naive individuals to one of uh, two. Two, two groups of lenacapavir given subcutaneously once every six months in combination with FTC and TAF. And then at the end of week 28, going on to a maintenance phase in which TAF was given orally and the lenacapavir subcutaneous dosing was continued. Group three or group two, instead of going on to TAF as a second drug, went on to Bictegravir. Group three was lenacapavir given orally for that entire period of time in combination with FTC and TAF. And then group four was the control arm of Bictegravir, FTC and TAF. And secondary endpoint was at the week 28 time point and the primary endpoint at week 54. And at CROI this year, we saw the week 54 data from the Calibrate study in treatment naive individuals. When you looked at the two lenacapavir subcutaneous groups combined, 88% had achieved and maintained virologic suppression through week 24 or week 48, 54. And two, only two patients developed lenacapavir resistance associated mutations. Both of these were thought to have an associated poor adherence, mostly to their oral background nucleoside analogs that allowed um, viral resistance to develop. Both of these resuppressed when they were given alternative treatment 
And there were three patients who developed treatment-limiting injection site reactions to the subcutaneous lenacapavir. The other major trial with this agent was occurred in individuals who had drug-resistant HIV, highly treatment-experienced individuals. And in this study design, those individuals went through two phases of screening, people with high, who were highly treatment experienced and did, still had in that second uh, screening period, um, HIV RNA levels greater than or equal to 0.5, um, I can't see that, nanograms per ml and had less than or equal to two drugs in their optimized that they could use with activity in an optimized background regimen and still had um, detectable viral RNA, those individuals went on to be randomized to a 10-day monotherapy arm with oral lenacapavir given for that 10-day period in comparison to placebo while they continued their failing regimen. They then went on to a maintenance dose of lenacapavir either given subcutaneously every six months plus their optimized background regimen or randomized to an oral lenacapavir lead-in if they had originally received placebo and then to a six-month regimen of lenacapavir subcutaneously plus their optimized background regimen. Those individuals who appeared to be not fully eligible based on the um, resistance and HIV RNA levels at their second screening dose were immediately rolled into an open label, non-randomized cohort to be followed con contemporaneously with the randomized group. And those individuals received um, in an open label fashion, oral lenacapavir plus optimized background therapy, and then went on to the same maintenance phase treatment. So week 52 data were also presented at CROI this year. And in the week 52 data presented in the randomized cohort, you saw that um, viral suppression at week 52, it was achieved and maintained in 83% of individuals who received lenacapavir plus their optimized background therapy. And there are similar rates of, of uh, virologic failure were seen. If you looked at the efficacy of the regimen based on the number of available drugs in the optimized background regimen, you can see that 94% suppression was seen in individuals who had at least two active drugs they could combine with lenacapavir uh, despite their heavily treatment experienced history, while 67% were suppressed on what was effectively lenacapavir alone at week 52 after because they had no active drugs in their optimized background therapy. That is a fairly remarkable uh, performance for a single drug given um, subcutaneously. We saw uh, at this summer's uh, International AIDS Conference some data on the emergence of lenacapavir resistance in this these two large clinical trials that have been ongoing in the Capella trial. There were eight of 72 individuals from the randomized cohort and non-randomized cohort combined who developed lenacapavir-associated mutations. And four of those were thought to have poor adherence based on low drug concentrations or plasma concentrations and 
other resistance mutations also to their NRTI backbone. And the other four were individuals who had no fully active um, drugs to put into their optimized background therapy. So suggesting that even though that 67% performance at week 54 looked good for uh, lenacapavir alone, it does leave lenacapavir uh, vulnerable to the emergence of drug resistance. However, in the Calibrate study, in the treatment-naive individuals, there were only two out of 157 individuals who were virologic failures and had lenacapavir-resistance-associated mutations. And again, both of those were noted to have either low plasma concentrations or poor adherence based on pill counts, so what you might expect. The only other study that had new data presented this year for lenacapavir was a study also presented at the World AIDS Conference this summer and really had to do more with lenacapavir being evaluated in PrEP studies. But I just wanted to highlight this because there are often um, questions about how much you need an oral lead-in phase for many of these injectable drugs that are being rolled out both in development and clinical practice. And this study was a simplified dosing regimen in which individuals either received the oral lead-in phase and then went on to subcutaneous lenacapavir, or they had a simplified uh, dosing regimen in which they received oral lenacapavir and subcutaneous injection of lenacapavir simultaneously at initiation of therapy, and then looking over time at PK concentrations. And although you can't really see the, the fine print there, the, the PK curves are overlapping in terms of steady state concentration, suggesting that at least for PrEP, if you gave an oral dose and a subcutaneous dose at the same time, you could achieve adequate concentrations well above the threshold that you hope to achieve. So what's the current status of lenacapavir? The drug was on clinical hold in, uh, in December of 2021, just like Latravir, which was very disappointing to all of this. Turned out to be a concern about the interaction or compatibility between the drug and the vials in which the drug was delivered and stored. That problem has been overcome. The clinical trials have been restarted. And in fact, a new drug application has been filed with the FDA for highly treatment experienced people. Uh, and we expect to have uh, word from the FDA by the end of the year about whether it will be approved. And in Europe, in the European Union, it has been approved for heavily treatment experienced individuals. So you'll see this drug hopefully in clinical practice um, fairly soon. The next group of compounds I'm going to briefly touch on are maturation inhibitors, sort of the, the uh, uh, one that's closest to clinical trials and in development is the GlaxoSmithKline compound. Um, on, only has a number thus far, 3640254, which I'm just going to abbreviate 254. And this uh, particular compound prevents the proteolytic cleavage of specific portions of the GAG protein, which prevents processing of the GAG pole polyprotein in late stages of HIV replication. So it's an important compound with a different mechanism of action. The earliest of these compounds that was in clinical development was Bevirimat. And you may recall that that 
quickly went away when pre-existing mutations of the compound led to its termination of development. We still think this may be an Achilles heel for other maturation inhibitors, but uh, phase 2A and 2B trials are underway with 254. We, saw, see, we have seen data presented at CROI this year for the phase 2A, uh, 254, and again, uh, seeing some of the complicated study designs that are going into development of some of these drugs. Uh, two different drugs compared with placebo in a 10-day monotherapy cohort in treatment-naive individuals, and then after that 10-day period going on to combination antiretroviral therapy, there was an uh, planned interim analysis at week uh, 24 in this small cohort of individuals. And unfortunately, there was emergence of resistance again to the maturation inhibitor observed in this 10-day monotherapy cohort. And the study underwent a revision to shorten the period of monotherapy, add different doses of GSK254, uh, and still comparing with placebo. And then at the end of seven days of monotherapy going on to combination antiviral therapy. Um, these curves just show you that at the highest dose in the part one of the study with 10-day monotherapy uh, treatment, the plasma HIV RNA declined by greater than two logs. And in part two, when there were three different doses of 254 being administered, um, none of which were as high the, as the initial dose used in part one, there was still a one to one and a half log viral RNA reduction with seven days of monotherapy. And the drug has now gone on to phase 2B studies. This just reiterates the point I made earlier about resistance mutations. Uh, in four of the six patients in that 10-day monotherapy study at the highest dose of, of 254 that resulted in the change in the study. In part 2B, there have been no resistance mutations detected in any of the doses that have been used. And if you look at the two PK curves in both the part one and part two, the uh, PK of the drug achieved concentrations that were well above the planned threshold for more than 95% of the individuals um, treated in both of these phases. So we'll see as this continues in development, whether it will be a compound that we have available to us, but just uh, summarizing, it was well tolerated. There were no grade three or four adverse events and no adverse events that led to discontinuation. And there are two studies ongoing now, the dynamic study and the domino study that are using the three doses that are in development in combination with integrase strand transfer inhibitors or nucleoside analogs in uh, treatment naive adults. And hopefully we'll see data from those trials. And the last group of compounds I'm going to talk about, you've already heard a lot about from Dr. Kaup. So it's a little bit embarrassing to talk about these in the context of treatment. Um, over on the, this is a, a slightly older slide now from Pablo Tibas with nice color coding of all the different monoclonal antibodies that have been evaluated over the years and linking them to their binding sites in the viral uh, RNA or viral membrane. These um, just as a class have been generally safe. They've generally been long acting injectable agents with long half-lives. They have antiviral activity that suppresses viremia. They boost existing immune responses. 
they have mostly been used, as Dr. Kalb talked about, in the context of cure studies, trying to eliminate uh, latent, the latent reservoir or, or help to eliminate the latent reservoir or used in the context of developing vaccines. The selection of resistance with monotherapy has been problematic in the clinical trials for treatment. And again, this may be an Achilles heel for these drugs in the context of treating people with active HIV replication. I'm just gonna highlight here two trials that we heard about at CROI, um, just to make the point again in treatment that these drugs do reduce plasma viremia when they're administered alone or in combination. They're obviously more active in, when given in combination and when you know that, they're, that the patient's virus is sensitive to it when you start on therapy. There have been a number of attempts to put these monoclonal antibodies or BNABs together in cocktails, and one of those was presented in, at CROI in a triple BNAB cocktail. And unfortunately, viral rebound occurred within 13 to 70 days, even to this triple BNAB cocktail, and it had to do with resistance to one or more of the monoclonal antibodies or low plasma levels. There are combinations of these in clinical trials, too, in the AIDS clinical trials group, looking at in combination with long-acting cabotegravir or as a tri-specific monoclonal antibody, and then outside of the ACTG there are, are monoclonal BNABs being developed for treatment by Gilead alone or in combination with each other or with lenacapavir. So I'll conclude that I do think there is an ongoing need for new antiretroviral drugs. The need is probably less urgent than in the past and the pipeline is certainly not robust and it's easy for many of these to fall beside the wayside. The, there have been the greatest efforts in longer acting injectable drugs that I've talked about, but there have been many hiccups along the way. And these will also have some of the complexities that we've seen with implementation of long acting injectable compounds that will still need to be addressed for these. And then lastly, for the BNAB class of compounds, I think for treatment, there's an uncertain clinical path and whether they will be more useful for PrEP or more useful for therapeutic vaccines or vaccination remains to be established. And I'll stop there and thank you. Okay, so a, a lot of great questions here. So first, how substantial was the CD4 decline in, Islat, in this Islatrovir trials that they decided they needed to dump the drug or stop the trials? You know, the original 2A study that I showed you, there wasn't any report of CD4 count decline or, or total lymphocyte decline. And I'm not, I don't really think that it was a dramatic reduction, but enough to concern the FDA that there might be a mechanistic problem. Um, maybe if there's anyone in the audience who knows more about it than I do, but I really haven't seen much more. I do know that there's likely to be presentations from Merck um, at major meetings this year, trying to address the mechanism for this decline in total lymphocyte count. So I think it's real, but I don't know the magnitude of that. Uh, so I think there's a lot of excitement about the lenacapavir and, and the long acting agent, but if they don't, if we don't have anything to pair it with, if it does get approved, would it still be paired with oral agents right now? 
Uh, yes, I think the the goal would be, you know, in all of the optimized background regimens that have been studied in the calibrate and Capella clinical trials, it's been nucleoside analogs, and the one study that that also used Bictegravir, and I think in both of the in all in both of the studies, those have been well tolerated regimens whether what other things you can pair it with and how that's going to play out in clinical practice. I think we won't know that until we start to see it emerge, more data emerge from these clinical trials, particularly the, the spectrum of optimized background therapy that was used with many of the with patients who were highly treatment experienced. Right. So in these treatment experience populations, when they studied lenacaprevir, um, you talked about uh, using at least two fully active drugs. So in terms of actually utilizing it in clinical practice, is it going to be primarily with two? What if someone only has one active drug? Would you continue to move forward? Um, well, so the, the point I was trying to make with that is that the best antiviral activity occurred when lenacapavir could be combined with at least two active other drugs. There was still substantial out to a year of follow-up um, 75 to 80% viral suppression with just one active drug and 67% virologic suppression with no active drugs. Although when there were no active drugs, there were higher rates of resistance associated mutations. So would I use it alone? Personally, I wouldn't. I think just like we've done in previous years with the drug, with highly treatment experienced patients, you try to optimize background therapy with recycling of drugs that they may have seen earlier and based on um, phenotypic or genotypic resistance mutations, ones that are likely to be the, the least vulnerable for emergence of resistance. So I still would use it in combination with at least one or two other drugs to kind of, to hopefully protect that uh, compound. Uh, so are, you talked about lenacaprevir in terms of with PrEP at one point. Are there clinical trials underway right now? Yeah, I didn't want to talk about those because I know you will be having PrEP talks and uh, didn't want to uh, steal anyone else's thunder. But yes, lenacaprevir is being evaluated in PrEP trials as well. Um, and so uh, why is the GSK367 uh, clinical trials designed to have a monotherapy period, given that we would expect resistance to occur? <laughs> uh, I'm not privy to the rationale for that, but it's a pretty common um, phase one study design because you do want to establish that it actually has potent antiviral activity in humans. Um, you can argue whether a 10-day monotherapy or a seven-day monotherapy is appropriate. And as it turns out, 10-day monotherapy was too long and certainly resulted in emergence of resistance. I think it was relatively brave of them to go on to a seven-day monotherapy study, but it, um, it worked and nobody developed resistance from seven days of monotherapy. And they got a pretty good look at the different dose levels and how active those were gonna be as a single agent before putting people on therapy. But, but in phase one clinical trials um, try, and phase two A clinical trials, trying to establish the antiviral activity of these compounds and their PK, it's a pretty standard study designed to use some period of monotherapy to assess the antiviral effect. 
So a question about the the data with the 26% uh, transmitted resistance of NNRTIs, I think from Rhode Island. Um, what Can you comment on the ability to use Cabanuva when you have those kinds of resistance, transmitted resistance? Um, so the Rhode Island data, I think, reflect um, drug resistance in individuals who had been on NNRTIs for a long time. And this is actually not really new information. Almost every study that's ever looked at transmitted drug resistance, there's an inherent background rate of drug resistance associated with the NNRTIs that makes that emerge in transmitted drug resistance studies. In, and so I, there are the newer uh, NNRTIs being used with long-acting agents and obviously in other compounds as, as once daily regimens. I probably, if you thought you were going to be using that as your primary treatment for a treatment-naive person, you know, current guidelines are that you don't need um, resistance testing before you initiate antiretroviral therapy, but you still get a baseline resistance test while you're uh, going ahead with your regimen. If somebody comes back with an NRTI mutation that you think might compromise your therapy, then you might change that initial therapy. But I don't think it's as concerning as the number and prevalence made it sound like. Okay, so um, I, I think I misunderstood one of the earlier questions and it's being re-asked in a different way. So how do you, we know that the addition of uh, Lenacapravir is better than only optimized background to two active drugs. They didn't see sort of that side-to-side -side comparison of only optimized background versus yes, if lenacapravir. If you had just optimized the background therapy. Um, you know, they didn't, uh, the data that were related specifically to outcomes on with lenacapravir plus optimized background therapy um, didn't have the control arm data in that graphic. And so I don't remember, maybe somebody who was at Croy remembers the presentation, whether they showed the background therapy, but um, most people were pretty highly drug resistant. They had to come into the study with resistance mutations to three of the four classes of compounds. So I would have expected that just optimized background therapy would have done okay, but maybe not anywhere near as okay. And what we've seen in, in other studies is just if you have only a couple of drugs that are active, optimized background therapy is not going to have a durable response for very long. Great. Um, that comes to the end of our question. So thank you so much for being here. That was a fabulous talk. Thank you.